live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Good evening, Robert Hirsch. Welcome back to part two on our series on Budapest. As a very brief recap, we have already discussed the 500 years of Jewish life. That was until 1526, when the Kingdom of Hungary collapsed. And today, you said we're going to be dealing with the next two centuries, a bit more modern, and they were very different. Yes, very different. Hungary was a large country in the Middle Ages, encompassing the Balkan countries, parts of Austria, Romania, But the bigger the empire, the harder to rule, and the more that neighboring states want a part of the territory. So to the south was the Ottoman Empire, ruled by Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, who also conquered Jerusalem, built the famous walls around the old city there. He captured Belgrade in 1521, and he used Serbia to launch an invasion of Hungary. Now, The Hungarians knew that an attack was coming, but they couldn't win any support from other Christian powers. So in August 1526, the Battle of Mohax took place, which was a decisive defeat of Hungary. In fact, it was the greatest national catastrophe until the end of World War I, where they lost two thirds of their country. And it was the destruction of the Hungarian monarchy basically forever. And as a result of the Ottoman victory, Hungary came to be divided into three parts with continuous armed clashes between them, at least between two of them. In the West, you have Christian Hungary. The local capital city was Preshburg, and it incorporated most of what is Slovakia today. And it was all under Habsburg rule from Vienna. The central part of Hungary and most of southern Hungary was now the Ottoman Empire. And uh, to the east, there's a new state, which is the Principality of Transylvania, Dracula country. The Ottomans, as a result of their occupation, in fact, left an influence on the development on modern day Budapest. There are public baths. They're very famous. And they get their water from the geothermal springs, which we mentioned last week with regards to mikvah, that run underneath the city. So the baths were built by the Turks. A lesser known example is paprika, which is a symbol of Hungary. It's on the souvenir list of most people who dine there, but it isn't cultivated by the Hungarians. It was the Ottomans who imported it. And there are also traces of Turkish input into the Hungarian language, which, being notorious to speak at the best of times, was now made even harder by the addition of Turkish words. I thought you were going to say Cholent. Did that originate in Hungary? No, it probably was around, they say that one of the possibilities of the word is Cholent, which is French. It means it gets hot slowly because that is the nature of it. So it could have preceded it by many centuries. Now, the job of an historian is to find the facts, but sometimes this isn't so easy. 
So if we look at what happened in Buddha in 1526 when the Turks took over, we have a description of the events by Joseph Hakoen in his Hebrew Chronicles of Europe. And he writes, I quote, The inhabitants of Buddha were seized with dread. They left the city and ran away, but the Jews remained and they cried out to God. The Sultan approached and the Jewish leaders went out to receive him, prostrated themselves before him and delivered the city to him. He said not a word against the children of Israel, and because he was merciful towards them, he sent them by ship to his country, where they live even to this day. Now, this is an almost idyllic picture of the first encounter between the Turkish conquerors and the Jews of Buddha. Problem is, it is clearly coloured by a strongly pro-Ottoman feeling of its author and isn't borne out by the accounts of other contemporary writers. Listen to this one. The Swiss Johann Kessler writes that when the Turks penetrated Buddha, they killed all the Christians. They then attacked the Jewish streets, which were protected by special walls and defended by the Jews with such vigour that the Turks lost two and a half thousand men taking it. So the Turks brought up their artillery, they stormed the quarter, and they hacked to pieces whoever had breath, so that of the three and a half thousand Jews, not more than 20 escaped. <laughs> and Kessler's report is clearly the opposite. Also, it is unlikely that there were anywhere near three and a half thousand Jews there. So what does a historian do when he has two opposing pieces of evidence? So uh, normally you're in a quandary, but we have a third. Ah. This is now not a Christian, not a Jew, but a Turkish historian, Ferdi Effendi. And he writes, Since the unbelievers living in the fortress of Budin had no strength to oppose the attack of the army in the Holy War, they were forced to escape, leaving the fortress empty. The poor remained as did the Jews, wrapped in shrouds who came out to greet the victorious army and beseeched for mercy. This was granted, and the Jews, whose number was greater than 2,000, were sent on ships to the land of Islam. Which means that the report about the slaughter of all Buddha Jews, except 20, simply can't be true. What the third report doesn't write, but others do, was that a considerable number of those Jews were taken as captives, and although settled in Turkey, they had to be redeemed by the Kehillus in Istanbul and elsewhere. So the Turks removed all Christians and Jews, that is according to all, and Buddha became a military fortress initially. In fact, it was the most important Western frontier castle of the Ottoman Empire. And at first, the Ottoman army behaved like all destructive conquering armies in Hungary. Whether the people they encountered on the way were Christians or Jews, it made no difference. There's a town a few miles west of Mohax. When it fell to the Turks, they killed the entire Jewish population there. The difference being that after the first sort of frenzy was over, the Ottomans turned to peacefully controlling the inhabitants and, you know, conditions returned basically to normal. By the 1530s, Jews lived in the walled city of Buddha. And by, in fact, the 1580s, their number had grown to 88 families, around 500 people. And a Turkish tax assessment of Buddha 
tells us of 238 Christian heads of families, 75 Jewish heads of families, and 60 gypsy heads of family. So the Jews were approximately 20% of the civilian population of the city. They would number a thousand Jews there by 1680. And this percentage of 20% remains in place until basically the end of World War II. So we touched last week on extra life, Jewish life in Buddha. What did they do there? So most Jews were merchants. In fact, they created a bridge between East and West. They imported the products of the more developed West, military supplies, metal manufactured equipment, products which had already been created, and they shipped these to the East. Whilst from the Turkish Empire, they bought agricultural products, textiles, leather, silk, coffee, tobacco, for which obviously there was a market in the West. And obviously the Turkish rulers of Hungary skimmed off a considerable cut from the top of this export-import business. And unlike the Middle Ages, from which only the Jews at the top of the pyramid are benefiting from wealth, here it is more spread out amongst the, so to speak, Jewish middle class. Now, for the Christian Hungarians still living under Turkish rule, be they Catholic or Protestant, to have to live under Muslim Turkey was, um, you know, traumatic, humiliating, but not for the Jews. They'd long gotten used to being a minority. And, you know, you have a German Christian traveler who passes through Buddha around 1578, and he writes that there are many Jews living here and their occupations were commerce, usury, which is lending money at interest, and betrayal, which is, uh, of course, sour grapes. Speaking of which, trade in wine was <laughs> prohibited even to the Jews. Do you like that um, yeah, link? Yes. Great, yeah. uh, in fact, in order not to tempt the Muslim population, the Turkish authorities forbade the use of wine even in Jewish ceremonies, a decree from the emperor that allegedly said that if they have wine, they will be decapitated. How did the Jews cope with that? We use wine for everything. Right. So we don't actually know. We can only guess. Black market? Well, you know, how did the Rav make Kiddush on Friday evenings? Now, there was a drink called Boza, which was fermented Turkish elderberry beer. So I guess that works for Havdallah. The origin of the word booze? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> did he risk a glass of wine or did they use khala, which is obviously not going to help you under the chuppah? You don't know. Now, as was in pre Mohak's days, the Jews lived on the castle hill of Buddha, where they had their shul, in fact, two. And as a result of being settled in Buddha, they were able to send several hundred florins every year to the poor in, in Yerushalayim, in Tzvas, in Hebron. And from time to time, you'd have shlichim from these cities who would visit Buddha to collect money. Interestingly, the connection to Eretz Yisrael is seen by the fact that some of them were even buried in Tzvas. I don't know exactly under what conditions and how they arranged for the transfer, but this we find in records. And from Turkish records, we know that the Jews had three rabbis, Moses, David, and Abraham by name. And they were probably the rabbonim of the Spanish community, the Syrian and the German. 
because by then you had Svardim and Ashkenazim moving into the city from across Europe, basically. How was life different in this part of Hungary to life in Western Hungary? The Christian side. Yeah. So the merchants there, non-Jews, resented the activities of the Jewish traders, the moneylenders, and they basically threw them out. First city was Schopron, Odenburg, where the citizens owed the Jews 4,000 florins, and they got rid of this debt by getting rid of the creditors. In Preshburg, there was a similar outcome. There were around 800 Jews living there. And after 1526, they applied to Queen Maria and got her permission to expel the Jews. But she said that only if the Jews are allowed to sell their houses and take the money with them. But the citizens managed to kick out the Jews and keep all the Jewish money and houses. Lovely people. So unlike today, you are much better off being a Jew under Muslim rule than Christian, it sounds. But, I mean, this was the case for most of the 800 years from, you know, I don't know, the year 1000 to 1800, anywhere. But there was a new threat that they had to deal with, not of Muslim making, and it particularly applied to uh, well-to-do Jews living in the Turkish-dominated part of Hungary, and that was being kidnapped and held for ransom by Hungarians. We have a recorded case in surviving documents, a Jew in Buddha called Moses in 1567. So in July of that year, an individual by the name of Gurgeli Schutz, I assume I'm pronouncing his name correctly, the surname is S-Z-U with an umlaut on C-S, so your guess is as good as mine. Uh, we can have emails on that from people who might be better Hungarian disposed. Hungarian listeners. Right, or German potentially. He was a soldier in uh, Eger, and he made a deal with Baron Simon Forgatch, the military command of the city, that if uh, Schutz kidnapped this Jew, who was one of the richest in Buddha, and he obtained a ransom, one third of the ransom would go to the baron, and two thirds would go to him, and the Jew would be held captive in one of the baron's castles. You're saying that nobility was involved in this sort of crime? Totally. It was basically seen as acceptable theft and extortion. So in September, the Jew goes to Rakova, he's kidnapped, and he's taken to Eger and kept in this prison. On the 9th of September, Mustafa, who was the Turkish Pasha of Buddha and high-ranking member of the Ottoman Empire, he wrote letters to two Hungarian officials telling them that another Jewish merchant is being kidnapped and they should arrange for the release of this Jew. And he reminds them that he had recently released three Germans who had been abducted. But this Moses is not released. And when Mustafa finds out that the kidnapping was engineered by this Baron Forgash in 1569 by now, he writes to the emperor, Maximilian, and he tells him to order the baron to release to me the Jew. Otherwise, the wife and friends of this Jew would go to the sultan himself, crying and complaining, and that would bring grief to Mustafa. Forgash learns that the emperor was trying to find Moses, he doesn't release him. He sends him to a more remote location throughout the whole winter. And officials of the emperor now come looking for him. So the local count, who's also in on this now, hides him. 
And Moses tries to call for attention by shouting, but he's in a dungeon. He can't be heard. Once the officials have left, he's sent back to Agar. And eventually, eventually he is released after paying a ransom and he returns to Buddha. Even after the emperor intervened, there was still a ransom needed to be paid. Yes. Yeah. They saw this as acceptable practice. We will at some stage discuss pirates in the Mediterranean Sea who literally had to be paid off by governments, the corsairs, in order not to attack shipping. And you had an insurance premium that you paid against kidnap and those that didn't want to you know, left themselves open. So, yeah, it was a mad world. Perhaps they didn't have to pay as much because there was pressure. Wouldn't it have just been easier to just walk in and loot the place? It seems a bit... No, here you take hold of a guy who's on his own because he's on business somewhere. All you have to do is get hold of one person. And remember, this Jew had ventured outside of Turkish-controlled Hungary to a Christian part of it. So you just take him. Now, it doesn't end there. In 1570... The Pasha writes to the emperor again. This is an exasperated letter. He reproaches the emperor for not only not punished Forgast for the kidnapping, but he elevated him. We don't know what happened, but clearly the Muslim rulers were prepared to help their Jews, which partially explains the eagerness with which the Jews participated in the defense of Buddha whenever it got attacked over the sort of 160 years that it was under Ottoman control. And we know that this is not the only Buddha Jew who was kidnapped and held for ransom by Hungarian soldiers. Well, wow. how would you describe religious life? Um, okay, so last week we mentioned that in the Middle Ages, Hungary was not a learned place, but this changed during this period. In Turkish-ruled Hungary, the Jews were religiously aware, textually knowledgeable, a well-organized community. You know, they had internal squabbles. But, of course. Yes, yeah. that makes it part of that the community. established community, exactly. <laughs> And they had well-oiled communications with the local representatives of Turkish power. You know, they bribed them when needed. Jews could travel freely all over the Ottoman Empire. And the Rabonim corresponded in halachic matters with colleagues in other parts of the empire, particularly Istanbul. And in fact, despite the enmity between the Turks and the Austrians, the Jews in Buddha had close contact with the Viennese Jewish community. And in many cases, their rabbonim appealed to the Viennese rabbis for a response in a difficult situation. That was the closest large community to Buddha? Depending on the times as to whether it was safe to go from one place to the other, geographically it would have been the closest. But obviously within the Ottoman Empire, I mentioned Constantinople, Istanbul, they also corresponded with Rav Chaim bin Shabtai, who was the chief rabbi of Salonika. But they themselves in Budapest by the 17th century had ranking rabbonim. The best known was Rabbi Chaim bin Yaakov Akoyen, who was first a Dayan in Vilna, and then in Moravia, in Prague, in Vienna. And in 1666, he becomes the Avbezdin in Buddha. He established the yeshiva there. And we will get to his very famous descendants in a moment. Mention one of his responsa. They are printed. This is just one. Shari Ephraim, I think is the name. He was asked whether Svaradim davening in Ashkenazi shuls in Buddha or the reverse. Is that considered prayer? Ha'im yitzim yidei 
And clearly there was, you know, some one-upmanship at play here between the various communities in Buddha. And he says, listen, they both say the Shema, they both say Shema Esrei, so it's fine. And as to this idea that, you know, there's an exact number of words in each bracha, and, you know, the others don't have this exact amount, Ein lo yisud, this has no basis in halacha. So basically, if you want to stir up trouble, you have to work a bit harder. Exactly. Come up with better questions. Now, Gitin, divorce certificates in Buddha. The question was, what do we call the place, Buddha or Ofen? It's German name, which we touched on last week, or perhaps both. And in Gittin, it makes a difference to the fundamental kashras of the divorce. So the Maril in the 1400s, we mentioned last week, was asked about this, and he felt that the Hungarian name is the name. The fact that Germany and Austria call it by the German name, even though all responsa until the 1400s have that German name, is irrelevant. It's Hungary, so it's in Hungarian. But for many centuries, they actually didn't do so. They wrote both. What they actually wrote was Buddha de Miscaria, that is called often, lying beside the Danube River and springs and thermal springs. Because in addition to the name of a location, you have to have a permanent landmark in order for a get to be written in a location. So they wrote both. The question now was, which one do you put first? So the Maharam Ash writes in several of his responses in Polymeris that even though the name of the city becomes often after 1686, after the Austrians take it back, he would nonetheless recommend that the name Buddha be used because the Svardim had originally formed the majority in the town and they were the first to issue local halachic guidelines. And in fact, just today, we're now not to Shabbos, but on Shabbos, I uh, spoke in St. John's Wood and I sat next to Diane Binstock from London Besdin, and he told me about Gittin in England. So during the first period that Jews were here, until 1290, London was called Londres because it was a French-speaking community, and that's what they wrote in Gittin, Londrish. Whereas after they came back in the mid-1600s, the Svardim were the majority, and the way they wrote London is the way it is written to this present day. Wow. So, under Ottoman rule, we find halachic decisions being made. We also find Jewish doctors in the corridors of power working for high Turkish officials in Hungary, and some of them combined the function of physician with that of international diplomat. One particular physician accompanied the Pasha into Hungary in the late 1500s, and this doctor was a power broker. He even managed to obtain the position of the Prince of Wallachia for a Christian governor. And another important 16th century Jewish physician and diplomat was Solomon Ashkenazi, who was at first the personal physician of two Polish kings, Sigismund and Stefan Batory, and he then became the personal physician and confidant of Sultan Murad III. He negotiated the peace agreement between Turkey and the Venetian Republic, and he influenced political relations between Turkey and the Kingdom of Hungary. So we see many times in history that the personal physician to kings had sort of an unnatural power and sway over them. They were that respected. In other words, they performed an important function. It wasn't just sort of somebody you went to a for medical, a checkup. Yeah. It was somebody who you, you trusted. entrusted your life to. Right. 
although to be the personal physician of a Turkish sultan wasn't without uh, danger or risk. In 1566, Sultan Suleiman died while his army was laying siege to a city and his Jewish physician who was with him was put to death. Wasn't risk-free. Exactly. Just switching back to history for a moment, how did the Turkish occupation come to an end? So the Ottomans were continuously spreading out and conquering parts of Europe. And they literally reached the gates of Vienna. And at that point, the West threw everything they had against the Turks. And a major defeat occurs in October 1683. And from there on, the Austrian Habsburgs marched against occupied Hungary, conquering it. And you have some Buddha Jews who escaped in time. They settled in Belgrade, but they had to have left before June 16th, 1686, because on that day, the Austrian forces surrounded Buddha, set up a siege, and nobody was able to leave the city. And eventually it would fall to them in that year. But regarding the uh, the chaos of the fall of Buddha, I want to introduce to you and talk to you about a hero whom you've never heard of, who was really Mason Efesh. He really put his life on the line for the Jewish people. Because when the siege of Budapest started, a young Jew from Prague called Sender Tausk, he felt it was an emergency, and he embarked on a project to save the Jews of Buddha from falling into captivity. He gets a letter of recommendation from the chief rabbi of Prague, and he goes to Vienna to Samuel Oppenheimer, who was the main supplier of the Austrian army. This Samuel Oppenheimer was a Jew who was allowed to reside in Vienna at a time when no Jews were tolerated there. He was a Talmud Chochem and a person of considerable influence in imperial government circles. Tausk convinced Oppenheimer of the feasibility of his plan, and Oppenheimer refers him to the commander-in-chief of the army. The army commander gave orders that any Jew captured in Buddha should be collected to one place and released for a ransom, which will be paid by this Jew, rather than being killed. And this Jew basically joins the front lines. Incredible bravery. And on September the 2nd, 1686, the Austrians broke through the Turkish defences. They lasted out for three months, and they captured Buddha. But before Tausk could do anything, there was an immediate massacre that day, that night. About a hundred Jewish men and women and children sought refuge in the shul near the gate. But the Hungarian and Brandenburg soldiers killed most of them. And once they entered the city, the soldiers had a free hand. And in the course of the looting, some houses caught fire, perhaps uh, accidentally, perhaps deliberately. And during the night, much of the city, including the shul, burnt down. But the next day he gets in, September 3rd, he's accompanied by an officer and soldiers. And this officer announced at every city gate, to the accompaniment of drumming to make sure that it is heard, that even though it is permitted to capture Jews, it's forbidden to kill them by order of the commander of the army, of the imperial army. And children showed Taos, this Jew, the location of the Jewish street and the shul, and they gathered every person who could recite the Shema into the burnt-out ruins of the shul, 
and they hoisted the imperial flag over it in order to protect them. By nightfall, he had assembled 274 Jews and 35 Sifrei Torah. And he's now, he can't find any more Jews. So he sets out with them. He doesn't want to leave them there any longer than they have to be there. And he's under the protection, I guess you would call it, call it of a contingent of soldiers. And they set out along the Danube towards Preshburg. But they're only going to be released when this ransom is paid. He has to pay for the 34 soldiers that he's got with him, 30 florins every day. And the Jews are eating bread and water. He gets to Preshburg. He manages to ransom six Jews there. And he hurries on to Vienna, but he leaves the rest of the Jews there under guard. In Vienna, the Habsburg government agreed to a ransom of 21,000 florins for the rest of the Jews. And he undertakes to raise this money within a certain period. He's not a Hungarian, a Buddha Jew. He's from Prague. Well, and he did this it's all single-handedly. All, all on his shoulders. He returns back to Preshburg. He puts the old people and children on 15 wagons and the rest on foot because he doesn't have money. This, this all costs. And he's accompanied now by 40 horsemen. They proceed to Nicholsburg, which was the most populous, this was the richest uh, Kehila of Moravia. But he is unable to raise as much money as he needs in time. And he is put in jail. And he's there for almost a year until finally the Christian Habsburgs realize that if he stays in jail, they're never going to get their money, their ransom money. So they release him and they take his mother and brothers as hostages. This isn't the end. He goes from city to city, schnorring. He goes to Krakow. He goes to Metz. He goes to Frankfurt. He even goes as far as Amsterdam. This is in the 1600s. Until through his efforts, desperate efforts, he raises the money and gets the release of his mother and his brother. Wow. Which is unreal. No one's ever heard of him. And shortly, in fact, after he left Buddha, there were another 25 Jewish men, women and children who emerged from hiding. They were captured and they somehow were ransomed too. And one last escapee was Rabbi Tzvi Ashkenazi, who is known more famously as the Chacham Tzvi, the father of Rabbi Yaakov Emden. He was born in Moravia, which is nowadays where the Czech Republic is, in 1656. But when he was still a young child, the family moved to Buddha, where his mother's family lived. Who were they? His grandfather was Rabbi Freim Hakoen, the Rav of the city that we mentioned earlier. Chacham Tzvi gets married there in 1680, but six years later, when the city became a target of war during the siege, a cannonball struck the house of the Chacham Tzvi and killed his wife and their only daughter, and he himself barely managed to escape, and after a lot of trouble and hardship, he ends up in Sarajevo, which is the capital of Bosnia. Wow. So back to Buddha, it's currently under Austrian rule. Yep. How drastically did things change for the Jews there? I mean, the new Austrian rule was uh, a disaster. Um, in many cities, uh, they were simply expelled, most cities. And it'd been unique in 160 years of Ashkenazi Jewry, where uh, they lived under Muslim, not Christian rule. But it was pretty bad. And for many years, they were not allowed back in. We'll discuss more the next phase of Jews in Buddha in our third week and next week's the, the last part of the series don't want to open up a, a huge subject but i'm sure the the listeners are as curious as i am 
Why was living under Muslim rule so much better? I mean, it's nowadays we can't really imagine because Christianity has softened so much and Islamic rule has gone the other way. But why in those days did the Muslims also not kill Jews as the Christians did? There wasn't the same religious tension. It wasn't a religion that had come to supplant Judaism. And the Jews hadn't turned their backs on God when they rejected Islam. They turned their backs on the prophet. It wasn't seen in the same light. They worshipped the same God. Yeah, so, you know, there was a lot more leeway, shall we say. Okay. Last week you said you would speak about the women's role in Budapest. Okay. We mentioned Fekita Mendel's daughter, Melamen, who, after she was widowed, became one of several Hungarian Jewish women in the money business. And she was clearly quite able because when a debtor failed to repay one of her loans at the time, she manages to sell the mortgage to the Church of Buddha for a payment of 800 florins. So she's uh, clearly able. But we have several other women lending money against mortgages in the first half of the 15th century, even on a large scale. And we have data showing that Preshburg Jewish women, for instance, paid taxes to the city, which means they were heads of households in the 15th century. And they figure with a frequency in documents in the 1400s and the 1500s. The most unusual profession that a Jewish woman engaged in at the time was that of a physician. We learn of one Jewish woman doctor who, in the middle of the 16th century, treated the wives of high Hungarian lords. Her name isn't known. She's just referred to as the doctor woman, <laughs> not Doctor Who. And from a brief reference, we know that in 1598, when the Austrian army tried to recapture Buddha, a Jewish woman fired one of the large artillery guns that was located in the Jewish street and uh, was part of the cause forcing the imperial army to retreat. And if we move ahead a bit, the Jewish traveller Moses Casuto, who visited Preshburg in 1735, he said that more women than men were engaged in trading and some were in the wine business, some were selling brandy. And another Jewess, Maria, wife of Moses, made her profession in distilling alcohol. And we know that because her distilling kettle was stolen and she sued the thief. So this is not a trade connected necessarily with women nowadays. But Was uh, this particularly in Buddha or no, no, the rest no, of Europe? No, no. And in fact, trading? a number of the examples are in Preshburg, but oh. yeah, all over. Okay. Rabbi Hirsch, that was fascinating. I guess before we sign off for today, we don't normally do questions in the middle of a series. We usually try and keep it to the end. But this one is historically part of last week's. So you mentioned Rabbi Isaac Tiranau, yes. the author of Sefer Menhagim, who apparently is the subject of a legend. And a couple of people have been asking about him. Okay, so as far as I'm aware, it's the subject of one of these Jewish historical novels for teens. But not being a teen, it's been a while. <laughs> uh, the legend is written in a booklet called something like The Hand of God, that he had a very beautiful daughter, and the son of the Duchess of Nogi Shambat, a non-Jew, asked the rabbi for her hand in marriage. Now, the rabbi clearly doesn't know what to do. He's scared to death, and he does everything to dissuade this young duke, but the duke persisted. So the rabbi says to him, I cannot agree to this 
I cannot agree to my daughter marrying anybody except a Drew, and that Drew has to be a Talmudic scholar. So uh, he extracts a promise from the rabbi that I'll let you marry my daughter if you fulfill these conditions. And soon thereafter, the young duke disappears and his mother searches for him in vain. Years go by and a young stranger appears in the yeshiva of Rav Isaac, who attends the rabbi's classes in Gomorrah. And he manifested such a broad knowledge and understanding that he becomes the rabbi's favorite disciple. And his diligence and his demeanor endeared him to the rabbi and even captivated the rabbi's daughter. And finally, he makes himself known. He was the young duke who disappeared, and he's fulfilled the rabbi's conditions. He's now come back to claim his bride. Thankfully, she's still single. (laughs) (laughs) The fame of the young couple spread in the town, and their wedding was attended by the duchess, who didn't recognize her son. But sometime later, his former nurse noticed a birthmark, and thus his identity is revealed. He was thrown in jail and because he'd converted to Judaism as a capital crime, but he continued to deny it even when his mother visited him and begged him, you know, promises him a full pardon if he reverts to Christianity. But he remains unrepentant and therefore he's sentenced to death and he was executed. His mother planned to take vengeance on the Jews of Nagi Shambat and especially in Rav Isaac, but her son appeared to her in a, in a dream and begged her to desist from her murderous plan, and she was satisfied just with expelling the Jews from the city. Now, we do know that the town experienced Soros around that period as a, a tombstone that talks about the year of suffering, but nothing is specified. So it could be true. Who knows? Very unlike Rabbi Hirsch to even entertain <laughs> the authenticity of such a story. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week for the final installment in this series. You're off to Spain this week. Correct. But we should hopefully be in time for next week. Thank you very much indeed. Please do send any questions, feedback, suggestions to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you for listening. <laughs>